Beyond the Defense, everyone. This is Heidi, and I'm so glad you're joining our podcast today. Special thanks to our return listeners and a warm welcome to our first-time listeners. I'm joined today by Dr. Christine Reed Davis, who recently completed her doctoral research entitled A Phenomenological Case Study of Faculty and Staff Experiences in Green Zone Training to Support Student Veteran Transition into Higher Education. Dr. Davis earned her EDD in Educational Leadership from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where she graduated in 2020, and we're so excited to engage her in conversation about her research today. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. Christine, could you start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Thank you, Heidi. And I'm so excited to join you today and discuss my research. Again, I'm Dr. Christine Reed Davis. I'm the Associate Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs and Dean of Students at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, otherwise known as UNC Charlotte. I have a bachelor's degree in psychology from Central Connecticut State University, a master's degree in student personnel and higher education from the University of Georgia, a certificate in crisis management and higher education from Harvard University, and now a doctoral degree in educational leadership from UNC Charlotte. I've been a higher education professional for 25 years, and I really cut my teeth in the areas of housing and residence life, student conduct, and student support services. Those focus areas gave me a breadth of experience and exposure to multiple aspects of university life and organization, and ultimately led me to my current role, which is being the Dean of Students. As a senior level administrator in student affairs, I serve a population of 30,000 students and lead 35 professional staff and 75 undergraduate and graduate student leaders in the offices of identity, equity and engagement, new student family services, student affairs research and assessment, student assistance and support services, student conduct and academic integrity and veteran services. I also act as a deputy Title IX coordinator and chair the university campus behavioral intervention and threat assessment teams. In my previous role as senior associate dean of students, I actually helped to develop what is now our veteran services office, which started as a one part-time coordinator and now houses four full-time professionals, a veteran student lounge, manages the GI Bill certification process, coordinates VA work study and programming opportunities, and supports the transition of veteran students into the university. So you're busy. Yes. (laughs) And all that in a pandemic as well. I was just going to say, how do you even virtually, you know, act as dean of students and, and, and try to do that? So you have a lot on your plate and add a doctoral work to that load. I, I can only imagine. How do you, when, when you have so many things that interest you in your day-to-day life, how do you narrow it down to this topic of staff and faculty experiences of this particular training? Why veteran education, veteran professional development? Yeah, I, you know, when I began my doctoral program, I thought I had this whole list of topics that I thought that I could explore. And one of our professors gave us the advice to research something that keeps your interest, research something that either keeps you up at night or that you're really curious about. But it was really my 
personal and professional experience with student veterans that led me to the topic. I have several family members who are veterans and utilize their GI Bill benefits to attain their college degrees. Also, my institution was founded as an educational center to serve and educate veterans coming back from World War II in the 1940s. And then in addition, my in my professional role, I've heard stories from student veterans about their experiences, both positive and negative, and their transition out of the military into college. And so coming from the military where every part of their lives was regimented and, you know, determined for them and supported in multiple arenas, then coming to a higher education college experience where pretty much they have to figure out things on their own. And so really listening to their stories finally put me in a position that I really wanted to figure out a way to support them. And, and in the way that I wanted to do that was to create research that looked uh, holistically at the university as an organization, not just the student stories, but the ways that faculty and staff members support their transition both inside and outside of the classroom. So as a student affairs practitioner, I, I wanted to explore those ways that could be practice-based and applicable instead of research that would just sit on a shelf somewhere. Well, and that that is right in line with what we're trying to do with Beyond the Defense is to not have that 200 page document sitting on a shelf, but actually, you know, bringing it back out in the sun and and sharing it with some of it with the world. You know, Christina, as I started reading your dissertation, I thought, hmm, military affiliated students. And you make the distinction, as you just did, between military active and then veterans But what are some of the other characteristics between either those two student types or just, you know, your standard right out of high school undergraduate student that are particularly salient to these students' experiences in higher ed? Active military students are still engaged in that hierarchical, authoritarian support structure within the military. They also just happen to be taking classes. So, They are getting their their orders. They are being supported through the community of other active military members, through healthcare, through counseling, through, you know, being told what to wear, what what time to get up every day. Whereas veteran students are coming out of that support structure and out of that regimented lifestyle. And so that's why in my dissertation, I determined the need to really focus solely on those veteran students because they do not have that type of support that active military students have in in that support structure. They are really truly transitioning out of military into academic norms. So the culture shift from highly structured, routine-based military to a less structured environment of college creates a a sense of transitional stress for them that is um, unlike the transition that their active military counterparts have and also is different from an 18 to 22-year-old coming out of high school. So where they have been very regimented, they are coming into a new environment with a different set of rules, sometimes from a conservative perspective to a more liberal perspective. They're also navigating a campus environment. So this cultural transition leads to stress and confusion and frustration. 
How do I get from point A to point B? How do I get my benefits? Who tells me when my, you know, my assignments are right? Um, All of these kinds of things. There are also social standards, orienting themselves to authority, that the sense of purpose, institutional structure, the role of teaching and learning in the higher education environment is different. Um, the literature tells us is different than in the military. Also, they're renegotiating their identity. Their military identity is structured around a collective unit versus individual identity, uh, which is the focus of an academic experience. Every role in the military has a task and a specific purpose, whereas uh, college identity is based on individual perspective and, you know, taking care of what you need to take care of to get your grade. So really looking at those, those differences and those changes in their transition into our college environment really speaks to the importance of trying to help seek understanding of how they're coming in, what their expectations and experiences have been, and how they show up on our campus uh, environments. That's really a a nuanced way of looking at it. I I don't think I had ever given it um, that much detailed thought, but the identity development piece of it is, is really fascinating to me. And I think very crucial to this next question, which is the green zone training. Um, I'm familiar with with that. Is that unique to your um, study site or is that sort of a national approach to um, training faculty and staff about veterans? It is not unique to UNC Charlotte. It was actually developed at Virginia Commonwealth University in 2010. And so several institutions across the country, although not enough institutions, in my opinion, have adopted um, the, the baseline of green zone training. So in essence, it is a set period of time, anywhere from 90 minutes to four and a half hours, where faculty and staff members gather together to hear information about the military, about the different branches of the military, about why people join the military, about what basic training looks like, about what combat and combat-related stressors might look like the diversity of military experiences. There are some assumptions that all military is combat military, and that is indeed not the case. Some information and training goes over the uh, deployment phase for those who have deployed, but also the um, phase of exiting the military. What kind of supports are present from the VA to GI Bill benefits? but then also provides faculty and staff some information about these that student veterans have been acculturated to understand very direct messaging, bullet points, uh, understanding that when a student veteran comes and asks for more clear guidance from a faculty member or um, sticks around and asks multiple questions to gain information about how to accomplish their mission, which is that particular class, how we can better understand those behaviors so we're not bristled by them or feel threatened by them. So green zone training not only provides a sense of education about the entire military experience, but also provides very tactile, uh, definitive ways that faculty and staff can engage with um, student veterans or other military affiliated students in order to best support them in straddling these 
environments of military and academic culture. So sounds like a important and and meaningful experience just hearing from hearing the description and what it sets out to do so you decide with your dissertation research to dig a little bit deeper and to explore i believe the purpose of your of your phenomenological case study was to to dig a little deeper into the lived experiences of those that participate in this green zone training What were you hoping to find out? What were some of the questions you were hoping to get answered? I was very interested in what motivated faculty and staff members to participate in training, how they experienced, what were they thinking and feeling during that experience. I was also interested in finding out, you know, what were the changes in their perceptions um, and also what were the, the outcomes of their participation in training. So what did they leave that training believing that they could do or um, what could they institute in their own scope of control in order to best support um, student veterans on that campus? So you chose this particular qualitative method. How did you end up with, with this particular way of inquiry? I am always drawn to stories. So I am very much, I think I've always been a qualitative researcher. I want to hear the stories. I want to hear the experiences of people because to me that feels very human. Um, It allows me to feel more connected to their, their human and lived experiences. I always go back to the the quote from Dr. Brene Brown that stories are data with a soul. And that quote actually pulled me through much of my program and my, my qualitative research because I think that there has been some misinterpretation in um, education that the only legitimate study is a quantitative study. Show me the data, show me the numbers. So I wanted to show that we could get really robust and interesting pieces of data from narratives, from stories of these faculty and staff members and how they experienced the phenomenon of this training and what it meant for them moving forward as professionals at this particular institution. Well, and I love that you you say you got robust data because I was struck by, as I was reading your method chapter, the the triangulation of qualitative data that that you included in this study you not only did interviews with the participants um, but tell us about some of the other pieces of data that you collected through your research yeah i had 12 participants and i did two sets of interviews so that's 24 interviews and i did Uh, Different follow-up questions for each participant and different follow-up questions, you know, for not only the participant, but they all had different points that I needed to pull more information out of. So in addition to those 24 sets of interviews, I also interviewed the two Green Zone facilitators. So the director of veteran services and a staff member in veteran services who was also, who was a veteran himself. And I did uh, two sets of interviews with them. 
In addition to that, I pulled the evaluations from the human resources, learning, and organizational development uh, was the office that hosted the Green Zone training, but veteran services staff presented it. So there was this collaboration between human resources and veteran services, which I thought was fabulous. But in looking at the evaluations from HR, anonymous evaluations, I coded all of those entries and and pieces of feedback. In addition to looking at the Green Zone training PowerPoint, as well as the Green Zone training and veteran services websites to triangulate and augment the data that I was receiving and interpreting from those narrative stories. It was quite robust indeed. And time consuming. I would it was, imagine. yes. Was <laughs> <laughs> one thing that one question that we ask every participant is what were your challenges and successes with this particular methodology? What comes yeah. to mind? Yeah. Um, I think my my successes were that clearly it gave me a lot of information. I had 551 distinct pieces of narrative data that then I narrowed down into 12 themes and 31 sub-themes. But with all of that, uh, there were some challenges. You know, the first of all is that there's no checklist or rule book or list of right or wrong ways to do qualitative research, especially uh, the phenomenological research that I did. So because I was exploring the essence of a phenomenon, you know, there's no... It's, it's not black and white. It's very gray. I like checklists. I like knowing definitively that I'm heading in the right direction. And I had none of those usual things to catch me in this particular process. And that was really, really hard. I remember thinking up until the very end that I really had no idea what I was doing. My dissertation chair assured me on multiple occasions that that was a completely normal feeling, but it really caused some anxiety for me that I that I wasn't quite sure where I was going, what I was doing. The second challenge that I had was the qualitative research in itself is a lot of work. From developing the semi-structured interview questions, conducting the first set and follow-up interviews to transcriptions and coding and reflecting on what the data was telling me, it was months and months of work in the middle of a pandemic, no less, as I mentioned before. And I'm a very tactile learner. So instead of using a software to code my interviews, I read through each one no less than four times. I hand-coded them. I color-coded emerging themes. I physically cut those themes out and taped them to a big piece of paper that I had on my wall uh, that was assigned with each of my four research questions so I could visualize them. I could touch them. I could move them around. And then when I... felt I was finished developing my um, emergent themes and my sub-themes. And then Audia recorded each one of those 551 narrative pieces of data into my phone's uh, voice notes so I could then transfer it into a Word document to determine which quotes I would use in my findings chapter. So what I discovered throughout that whole process was that I really needed to have my hands on the data to be able to move and manipulate it in order to feel thoroughly immersed and saturated. I didn't understand what the word saturation meant when I was taking it in class, but at the end of this process, I I completely (laughs) understand what that saturation means. 
So it was a really long and messy process, uh, but it brought me a lot of insight and was totally worth it in the end. I feel like there's a theoretical journal article in there somewhere about (laughs) your tactile approach to qualitative inquiry. That's really, that's fascinating. You, I I was again, surprised. I'm reading your method chapter. Then all of a sudden there was mention of a pilot study. Yes. (laughs) And I was like, oh, she, she did a whole other study before she did her study. So um, tell our listeners a little bit about what you learned from that experience. The pilot study was actually an assignment in my advanced qualitative methods course, which my dissertation chair taught. So it was all, you know, all of the planets were aligning, but I was able to go through this, this study in a pilot format for an entire semester practice my, you know, my, my process, my methodology, practice my semi-structured interview questions, uh, learn some lessons. Uh, I'm a former conduct officer. So in, in the first two interviews, I noticed that I asked them to state their name, which is totally in, in the antithesis of being, you know, a protected <laughs> a participant in a confidential process. So that, that was really good to, to know and find out. Also, I needed to to find out that I really needed to relax. And instead of having these very, you know, again, the checklist kind of mindset, it helped me practice relaxing and having a conversation and being curious. And if you go off the script, that's why they're called semi-structured interviews. If you go off the script, that's okay, because you're going down your, your, as my advisor called wandering around. You're you're wandering, wandering around, and you're wandering through whatever path the, the participant wants to take you. And it may not be the one that you thought you were going to go down. So that pilot study as part of a course really was super helpful. And it put me really ahead of the curve because I had to complete my IRB for that course. And so as soon as the pilot study was done, I could jump right into making small adjustments to to my IRB proposal and then getting to work in collecting data. And then the pandemic hit and that that halted me for probably a good six weeks while I tried to figure out what was going on in my professional and personal life and then how to pick up this data collection process. The other thing I learned um, through my uh, pilot study was that all of my participants were female. So I needed to create another process within my full study to maximize the opportunity or the the recruitment of a more diversified group of participants. So I was able to utilize directed emails to uh, staff members that I knew personally had taken the study that were male. And so I was able to get permission from IRB to to do that one extra step to not have a, a homogeneous sample, but to have a more diversified sample. So that was very helpful to learn in my pilot process as well. I want to pick up on the thing you the, the thing you referenced just just now, and that is conducting doctoral study uh, throughout a pandemic. Was your original goal to do face-to-face interviews? And if so, I'm seeing you nodding. How did you pivot? Like, what what does one do as a doctoral student faced with such a huge disruption? Uh, How what strategies did you use to to run to roll with the punches, so to say? 
I took advantage. Of, well, first I grieved, quite honestly. I grieved the blowing up of my plan. And it took me, as I mentioned, about six weeks to really, because I was also managing COVID decision-making and two kids in school and trying to figure out all of the world feeling like it was on fire around me. And I had to set my dissertation aside for a little while until I was ready to come back to it. And there's no rhyme or reason as to why or how I, I got ready to come back to it. One morning in the shower, I just decided, all right, Today's the day and I'm ready. So I think by that time, we had become fairly familiar or confident, at least, with some of the Zoom options. Uh, so yes, my plan was to conduct face-to-face on-campus interviews, you know, and I was really worried that it would not have the same um, intimate feeling or the feeling of connection with my participants. But at this point, I had the choice to either figure it out and move forward with a new plan or decide to delay my entire study. And that I decided that was not an option for me. I decided to be flexible and take advantage of Zoom. And I had to redo my confidentiality agreement and, and redo some of my IRB process again in order to move forward with that, that new plan. Ultimately, I really think it worked out for the best because my participants were available more immediately in the middle of the day. We didn't have to worry about is, you know, a conference room available? Could they get from one side of campus to the other? Did we have to do it after work hours? They could just log on to their computer and it was a go. So ultimately, I, I really think it it was beneficial because I was I was able to make the best use of our time. And I do not feel like I didn't lose any of that feeling of connection. Felt It still felt very authentic and genuine. Yeah, that, that mirrors the experience I had with my participants as well. I mean, and mine were on the other side of the country. So I was obviously never going to fly and hotel stay and you know all that but um yeah you just you still just sort of make a human connection even in that virtual environment yeah and I think at that time uh, the participants were so longing for connection (laughs) with another person to talk about whatever so I think um you know the time that we spent together was continued connection you know human to human even if it was over the the video camera versus feeling isolated in your home one of the challenges was that i had to adjust the participants that i was recruiting because my intent was to recruit participants who had currently been engaging in green zone training during the spring semester and when the pandemic shut everything down it of course shut down those face-to-face professional development trainings that HR was doing so I had to sort of reach back into the sessions that happened in the fall semester and so for many of our participants there wasn't a lack of remembering what that experience was like for them they were able to recall it very easily because it had been so impactful to them so I'm very fortunate that that was the case. I was worried that that would be one of my challenges with having to pivot going back a few more months into that into that pool of training participants instead of it being sort of fresh after two or three weeks of, of their participation. Also, if it's a finding, I think, in and of itself, that the fact that it was so impactful is, is kind of a meaningful 
um, meaningful nugget. Two more questions about method. Um, one, you had a couple of theoretical frameworks that sort of worked alongside your data analysis with you. Um, can you share with our listeners which uh, particular theories you read through that, as you were sort of thinking about your data analysis? Absolutely. So due to the very interpretive nature of, of my research, I did not ground myself in any one particular theory. And that also was sort of, I had to f- reframe my mindset around that, which I had great help from my dissertation chair, because I wanted to use theoretical concepts to inform my research rather than direct it or give it definitive answers in, in the format of, of the, learning about the essence of people. I didn't want to assume I knew all of their answers. So um, I used two theories to help me inform my findings and my interpretations. The first was organizational cultural theory that proposes that there are subcultures that exist within organizations and that the ongoing growth of an organization depends upon negotiation and alignment of those subcultural values and assumptions. The second framework um, that I used to help me interpret was transformative learning theory. And that theory proposes that individuals can make shifts in their beliefs and attitudes based upon the actual process of learning rather than solely through the acquisition of new knowledge. So organizational culture theory helped me situate my findings within a larger institutional context, which is what I was going for in in my initial decision to to do the study. And then transformative uh, learning theory informed the meaning making of individual participants in the green zone training experience. So they really helped to offer interpretations of my findings instead of presenting definitive meaning to the data. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and unique approach. You know, you hear so much about you must have a theoretical framework and it must underpin all aspects of your study. Yes. And and you're like, well, wait a minute, this is a phenomenological study and it doesn't quite work that way in this case. So I thought that you were both bold, um, but also probably correct in, in the way you, you wrote about that in your, in your method chapter. Which I think um, led to some of my anxiety about the process. Like I had f- colleagues, and classmates who had definitive theories that they were connecting to. And I was like, shouldn't I be doing that? And again, this process of um, wandering and wandering around sort of gave me the freedom to not, to not hitch myself to any one thing, but to really use multiple theories to really help me frame the findings within the essence of, of their being. It's very yeah. philosophical. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Speaking of philosophy, uh, adjacent to philosophy is ethics. And I thought um, you did a nice job at kind of explaining ethical considerations of this study for you as a sort of high-level position administrator at your study site. Talk to us a little bit about how you how that influenced your work and, and what you did to sort of mitigate these ethical concerns or considerations? As a senior level administrator on the campus that I did this research and being a fairly well-known face around campus, I had to be very cognizant of making sure that 
participants did not feel unduly influenced or feel like they had to participate in this research because of my title, my positional power. So one of the things that I did was to utilize a graduate teaching assistant out of the um, educational leadership department to when I was trying to do face-to-face recruitment at the end of Green Zone trainings, that TA would present the information on my behalf. So there wouldn't be this physical presence standing up in the room and participants being like, oh, I don't want her to be mad at me. I should really participate. So I tried to remove that pressure from them as much as possible. I also was very clear in my information, both that was read by the teaching assistant, a research assistant, but also in any email communication that was sent out on my behalf from human resources. So it never came directly from me. It came from human resources, but it was very clear that I was conducting this research in my role as a graduate student, not as a dean of students, but you can't always separate the two. So I really had to live in this dual identity of being a senior level professional and a graduate student. And, you know, ultimately I think it worked to my benefit. I had some uh, participants who I am collegial with and have worked with for many years who are like, of course I will help Christine. Then I had other people who had no idea who I was and they're like, oh, this is an interesting topic for me. And so I, I just tried to remain very cognizant that I had some positionality and I didn't want to influence positively or negatively anybody's participation. I also needed to recognize my own positionality and feeling emotionally connected, personally and professionally, to the topic of student veterans. I I think the benefit of that is that I have some good understanding of military knowledge and history and vernacular and can, you know, have maybe an understanding of what that student veterans experience is. But then also, I wanted to be sure that I uh, recognized any emotions I might have had around some of the some of the responses, especially in in one of the surprising findings of holding tension and support that some participants really felt conflicted about supporting military veterans when the participants themselves had a more liberal mindset. And so I had to I did a lot of note taking, a lot of journaling. And ultimately, you know, I from a phenomenological perspective, I had to read a lot of articles <laughs> on on this and how to really bracket my identity and my my understanding and my emotions. But I finally came to realize I'm a co-creator of this knowledge. It's not a knowledge that I have that somebody is trying to, you know, rise up to my level. It is really this co-creation between me, the participants, the literature, the student veterans themselves that really provides an opportunity to to create this knowledge. So I was finally able to settle in in that mindset that I'm I'm co-creating this with all of the people around me and I'm not the holder of of definitive knowledge. So it was, it really was a very reflective philosophical process to go through. Um that took a long time actually. Yeah, that's that's very eloquently put. Actually, I think that's something that a lot of qual researchers struggle with or, you know, have to navigate and in their work because we tend to study what we're interested in. And so there's that personal connection there. That was well explained. Thank you. 
let's get to the findings. Let's get to the good stuff, right? Like every every dissertation defense, we we look forward to this piece of it. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you had twelve themes and thirty one sub themes. Holy cow! Yeah, it was um, a lot. <laughs> uh, share share with our listeners some of the high level themes that that rose to the surface for you. Yeah. So I had four questions and I remember being in a class and a person who had already graduated came to present and they're like, remember for every question you have, you have to answer the question. And I was like, oh, no problem. And then when I was answering four questions, I was like, why didn't I listen to him? Could I have done this with one question? But again, ultimately it created a really robust piece of research that I'm really proud of. So Ultimately, what I found was that the initial motivations of these participants to participate and and come to spend 90 minutes in green zone training were driven by elements that encompassed a respect for community. So that was a respect for the military community, a respect for the veteran services office and the professionals within that university community and the work that they were doing. They had a desire to learn more about student veterans, either because they had family connections or they had personal experience with veterans, or they just felt like they were curious and they they wanted to know more. It was also driven by compassion, compassion for others and curiosity about the students that they were committed to serving. They characterized their overall experience as a sense of personal and professional impact that they realized during their training, which then supported positive perceptions of the training experience. One of the biggest pieces um, of information that had the most data associated with it was this connection through storytelling. So as I mentioned previously, one of the training facilitators was a veteran. And so he shared his personal experiences about his time in the military. And that really came through in the participant stories about connecting a, a student veteran with a face and a name, and a personal experience. It exposed them to the reality of of veterans' lived experiences. It deepened their sense of compassion and empathy for student veterans, and it, it gave depth and credibility to the material that was being, the factual material that was being presented was also supported by these lived experiences in these stories of a student veteran who was on campus and, you know, within their their collegial group. So that was really a very powerful, powerful finding that was really impressive to me. So the perspective changes that uh, participants experienced, really this coupling of factual information with personalized experiences led them participants to shift their perspectives related to the diversity of student veterans. It also shifted their perspectives in reframing their personal and societal assumptions about student veterans and uh, caused them to, to think about and contemplate positive ways that the university supported student veterans, but also where were the barriers that they saw to student veteran success. And so Building this awareness around the military as a cultural identity provided them with an opportunity to correlate the veteran transitional experiences with those of other 
invisible or underrepresented student groups outside of the mainstream of traditional college population. And that training experience also served to counteract some misperceptions that participants had about the military. And then finally, that outcome, um, post-training outcomes, that was the second largest piece of narrative data that I had. Lots of participants talked about creating a sense of agency for themselves, um, adding to their professional toolbox, and changing starting in their department. So many of them stated that they did not feel like they had the positional power to change policy or change what the chancellor or the cabinet did, but they could change little things within their department to impact student veteran support. So really looking at the spheres of their own um, influence at the institution was an outcome of this training. It also caused them to participate in this critical reflection and navigating dissonance, as I mentioned previously, that they felt in supporting student veterans alongside other student populations who might apply negative stereotypes to the military based upon past and current political environments. So participants engaged in this critical reflection that contributed to their ability to jointly hold contradictions, contradictory realities and support for students, and then tension in supporting other students with differing identities on campus. So it it ultimately created desire for many participants for deeper and more advanced learning about student veterans. They've asked for Green Zone Part 2. They want deeper dives. So that those were really, really interesting findings of of the, the data that I was able to interpret. Yeah, that is a really is a lot and a lot of good stuff, I think. Um, two questions about your findings. One, I was struck by, I do work with international education and, and I saw that some of your participants um, compared veteran students to international students, even though they most of them are U.S. citizens. What were some of the parallels that they drew between those two groups? Some of those parallels were really coming out of, it was cultural parallels, coming out of one culture being this military culture where student veterans knew what the norms were, knew what the expectations were, knew how to find services, knew how to access help. And then coming into a college environment, although in the same country, a very different cultural environment and having to navigate finding peer groups, finding help asking for help, knowing the language and the vernacular of this new cultural identity on a college campus, um, they found very similar to their experiences working with international students who are coming from one culture into the U.S. culture, but the U.S. culture on a college campus. So that was a unique parallel as well. I was not expecting that. But after they explained it to me, multiple participants explained that to me, in their own words, I could could totally see those similarities. The other thing that we always like to explore with our, uh, with our participants here on the podcast is what of those findings that you just referenced or, or some of the other sub themes, do you think other researchers should continue to explore? Like what, what particularly stood out to you that were like, Oh, more work needs to be done on this element. Yeah, I definitely, there's definitely more work to be done, Um, not only with student veterans, but really exploring 
future research on the faculty experience. So one of the limitations in my study is that I did not have very many faculty. So I really think that faculty voice needs to be a strong part of any future research in these experiences in professional development to prepare campuses for X population, whether it be student veterans, international students, LGBTQ plus students. So since those voices were very limited in the study, I think future researchers really could focus on how to get faculty involved both in training, but but also in participation in research. Pre-pandemic, my advisor and I were hatching all of these plans and trying to create ways to have focus groups of faculty members and sort of, you know, provide some presentations to academic deans in order to encourage faculty members to participate in the training, but also in the study. That didn't happen. So someone else can pick up that mantle and um, and take that. I think another suggestion that I would have for future research is exploring motivating factors that impact faculty again in participation period on professional development for student populations. So what motivates faculty to participate in trainings around something outside of their discipline? I think that would be really fascinating. I think future researchers could align other theoretical frameworks to faculty staff experiences in green zone training, looking at adult learning theory, looking at uh, ecological systems theory or sociocultural theory. And then the last idea that I have around that is applying organizational culture theory to a longitudinal study that investigates the impact of green zone training on institutional policies and procedures to support student veterans. So there's definitely a good bucket of future research that could be done by others. Sounds like it. Absolutely. And I'm wondering too, you know, research is only one aspect of the work what does it all mean, right? So chapter five implications, what practical applications would you like to see applied either to green zone training or veteran support programming based on what you learned from your study? Yeah, one of the really interesting things that I uncovered, and I think I did it by accident, was really looking at Aristotelian elements of of learning in green zone training. So what this training did was represented elements of ethos, pathos, and logos. And the combination of these elements brought uh, this point of critical reflection that uh, for our participants that led to the integration of new perspectives and their decision-making to support student veterans, um, which is indicative of transformative learning. And it, it was actually really interesting to look at. So the balanced combination of these elements proposed, you know, in 500 BC by Aristotle or whenever, And these elements of persuasion, but also that emotional connection is the foundation of that transformative learning to take place for participants. So I think in practice, future professional development trainings around student veterans or other invisible or um, underrepresented student groups should really look at applying these elements into their training process. 
you know, one of the key things about green zone training that I think is so unique and so impactful is the involvement of a veteran, the involvement of a person with that experience that others can connect to. Other universities have a panel of veterans that represent the different military branches, that represent different um, you know, sexes and genders in the military, that represent different races. Uh, because the military is so diverse, there's such a, a plethora of of experiences that can be shared with faculty and staff to help them connect to that information. And I really think that that is the biggest practical lesson that I would like for people to take from this research is applying those personal experiences into those factual trainings in order to create that greater connection. Uh, And that leads me to, to ask that same question about other faculty or staff professional development, not veteran specific, would you then say, okay, so if it's an LGBTQ, like a safe zone training um, type situation or suicide awareness training, like, would you, would you go that same route? I think it could be very beneficial, but I also know that there's some emotional baggage or no emotional weight that those trainers need to carry. You know, in my follow-up conversations with the veteran facilitator, he said, you know, he would basically have to take a nap after <laughs> after those sessions because reliving some of those experiences, some of the trauma was very draining for him, but he made a personal decision that it was worth it. It was worth it to present that information in such a meaningful and authentic way to um, get faculty and staff members to truly understand that there are humans and souls connected with that military experience. I think the same could be said for any other population, but there has to be a consideration of that, that emotional, the emotional toll that it could take on, on whomever is presenting that particular topic. That's an excellent point. How does your work, this particular dissertation, move the, how does it add to the literature, right? Like, how does it move the scholarly conversation on this topic forward? So what I found in my literature review is that there is no research like this at all. Um, This was the first that I could find. And so my research really fills a void in that literature. And it illuminates an understanding of faculty and staff um, in their motivations to participate, in their meaning making around this particular type of training. And I think, you know, impactfully, it serves as a as catalytic research to shift the tone, our tone of discourse towards more holistic institutional accountability and organizational awareness for student veteran success rather than placing the onus of that on individual student veterans uh, for their own success. We really need to come together as a community to learn about these students, to figure out ways to support them so we could be partners in their success instead of welcoming them to campus and then saying, all right, you're on your own, figure it out. So I really think that this research can, can catapult future research and future practical applications in this particular arena. That's a very altruistic way of looking. It is. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the findings that stood out to me is that this 90 minute training developed some altruism in the, in the participants and your staff and faculty participants, but perhaps it developed some enhanced, whatever altruism you already had inside yourself. Yes. (laughs) 
Hard to separate the researcher from the research project. Yes, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> Question for you. You're an administrator full-time. Is there any other research you're working on right now? Not currently. I'm taking a rest from research, um, so I don't have any other research in process, but I am meeting with my uh, dissertation chair this summer to discuss publishing my, my research, my current research, since it's the only one of its kind in the in, in our field. Um, she tried to push me on it, you know, close to my defense, but she's like, I'll, I'll give you a little while to take a rest. And I was able to participate in in-person commencement this past week. So I was able to see her in person for the first time in 14 months. And she said, now is the time, Christine, we are going to talk about this. So that is my goal is to is to try to um, publish this research. But she has actually done research on student veteran experiences from the student veteran voice perspective. So I think we'll explore a study together um, sometime in the future. She shared with me that if my you know student affairs career doesn't work out, that I would be an excellent researcher. I'm not sure that I'm ready to hang that up yet, but we'll see. We'll see what happens in the future. Well, we we would love to have you on back again if there's another study that that you know we are, we are planning on doing some um, non dissertation hot topic research. So you know perhaps we'll see you on a future episode. I will keep that uh, in mind. <laughs> Last question, and this is something we ask everyone, um, unrelated to your dissertation, but perhaps related. What pieces of advice do you have for individuals currently pursuing doctoral study to help them on their journey? I think that is a great question. And I asked that question of multiple (laughs) students and colleagues that were farther along in their process through my four and a half years. I have a couple of pieces of advice. First, uh, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, Be patient and kind with yourself. You'll feel moments of greatness where everything seems to be falling into place. And then there will be moments of confusion and exhaustion and times that you just want to give up, that you have forgotten why you started this. I promise for those of you going through um, a doctoral journey that the sense of personal accomplishment and contribution to our field is totally worth it in the end. I kept a quote from Nelson Mandela right above my computer. It's right above my head. And it says, it always seems impossible until it's finished. And that motivated me throughout my program, especially in writing my last two chapters. It always feels lonely. At least it did to me. It gets lonely um, at the end. Uh, You're done with classes and it's up to you to write your final chapters my advice is to lean into your community, uh, lean into your support systems, take time for yourself, practice self-care, allow yourself to step away from the process um, every once in a while, because it really will help you clear your mind and possibly open yourself up to new avenues of thought. And then finally, my last bit of advice is to remember that you are the smartest person in the room. When it comes to your particular topic, Uh, chances are that no one else has done what you have done the way that you've done it. So feel confident in that knowledge. Those are bits of advice that I collected along the way from others who had been on the far end of the journey and, and some things that I really had to personally reflect on in my own journey. So those are my parting words of wisdom. 
Thank you so much for those. That's Those are really golden nuggets, I would say. So thank you, Christine, for joining us today. It was a pleasure talking with you about your study. It was a pleasure talking about my study. You know, it's been a couple of months. I defended on Veterans Day, actually, in 2020. So again, another serendipitous <laughs> you know, part of my journey, it felt really great to be able to defend this topic on Veterans Day in celebration of all of those who have served and are currently students. And it's just been a joy to be able to, to share my, my findings and my research and my passion. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Again, to our listeners, remember to subscribe to hear all future episodes of Beyond the Defense podcast, where new episodes are released Fridays at five o'clock. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates on upcoming episodes and to get more information about sharing your research. We'll see you next time.